The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Our show today, we're going to be talking about treating complex eating disorders and, and with co-occurring disorders in a unified and integrated approach with our guest, Dr. Gail Brooks, who is, comes to us from the Renfrew Center. Did I at Renfrew? Yeah, no, Renfrew right? Center. It doesn't uh, chip off your tongue so easily, but it's Renfrew Center. Yeah. Thank you, Gail. Mm-hmm. Um, Gail is a chief clinical officer. She was awarded a doctorate in clinical psychology from Duke University and completed a psychology residency at Northwestern University. For the past 25 years, Gail has treated patients who suffer from eating disorders. She has appeared as an eating disorder specialist in the HBO film Thin, and she's been on talk shows including Good Morning America. Gail has been featured in eating disorder articles in major magazines, publications, and newspapers, including the New York Times, People Magazine, Essence Magazine, and the Renfrew Perspective. She also presents workshops on issues including treatment of the complex patient, eating disorders, cultural diversity, the interplay between eating disorders, trauma, and eating disorders in midlife at major eating disorder conferences, including... Um, the Renfrew Foundation Conference, the Woodhill Institute, the American Mental Health Council Association, and Eating Disorders Coalition. Um, Gail, thank you so much for agreeing to spend this hour for us with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mary. You know, um, eating disorders uh, seems there has, seems to have been an explosion in eating disorders in the last twenty years. Is it because we're more aware of it, or has something changed with our cultural self-image? Um, you know, I suspect it's a bit of both. Um, you know, I, th- I certainly think that we've become much more aware of eating disorders. Um, they were really sort of seen as, as rather obscure disorders back in the 60s and 70s. And um, as I think professionals have become more educated on eating disorders, as, as physicians are more aware of it, and as, a, as the general public has become more aware that we are identifying eating disorders um, uh, more readily. Also, I just think that the conditions within our society um, really set the stage for there to be a, a lot of pressure, particularly on young girls and women, um, to be very concerned about how they look, to be very focused on thinness, and to have a lot of conflict um, in terms of how they relate to their bodies. Um, so I, I suspect that's also contributed to an increase in eating disorders as well. Are eating disorders primarily seen in women, or do men have eating disorders as well? Men can certainly have eating disorders. However, um, by and large, um, anorexia and bulimia in particular are disorders of women. Um, You know, about 
oh, maybe 15 to 20 percent of those individuals suffering from uh, anorexia and bulimia may actually uh, be male. Um, however, binge eating disorder, uh, which is probably the most prevalent eating disorder that we have, um, we see that sort of in equal numbers with men and women. How does an eating disorder differ from a body dysmorphic disorder? Well, I think that, that certainly they, there is some overlap there as well. I mean, body dysmorphia really um, has a very uh, significant uh, anxiety component, um, obsessive compulsive focus on body parts and being very preoccupied with uh, changing body parts and, and um you know, belief systems that, that one's body is not okay. Um, you can see some of that in a person with, an, with anorexia and bulimia as well, that they can be very preoccupied uh, with the body. So I think it's a bit more of a, a matter of focus and intensity. So could you explain for our audience what anorexia nervosa is? Sure, sure. Now, anorexia um, is, is probably the, is the, the rarer of the eating disorders that we see. About one in every 100 women suffer from anorexia. But it tends to be the disorder that people know more about because it's, uh, you know, you, you hear a more about it in the, in the general media. But what, what anorexia is is that it's, it's one of the, the hallmark symptoms is re- severe restriction of food intake um, relative to what a person would normally need in terms of their caloric intake. And uh, with that, that um, the individual becomes emaciated and, and maintains a, a very low body weight um, that they're not really meeting what we consider sort of a, a minimal uh, normal body um, weight for their age. Um, and in, in children or in adolescents, oftentimes it also is an indication that they, they're failing to sort of grow and develop in the ways that, that uh, would be expected. Um, along with, with severe um, caloric intake, uh, re- reduction of intake, um, we also see sort of persistent behaviors to try to avoid gaining weight. Um, so this would be seen in, in you know, very chronic dieting, um, avoidance of, of certain foods, um, you know, engaging in a lot of, of exercise, anything to sort of burn calories. Um, and that uh, also that there is... Um, a real focus on body and shape and weight um, being what um, influences a person's sense of self-esteem and self-value. So everything about who they, who they are, um, their sense of self-worth is really tied with, with how thin they perceive themselves to be. Um, and there's a real lack of, of recognition oftentimes in terms of the seriousness of their um, of their medical condition or the seriousness of their, their very low weight. Um, so these can be very challenging, disor- uh, challenging disorders to treat. In um, addition to having a low body weight, what are the medical complications of anorexia? Well, anorexia can, um, with the severe malnutrition, um, what can happen with that is that the body really goes into what I would describe as kind of a hibernation sort of phase where it's trying very hard just to conserve whatever um, calories are taken in. And the body also begins to sort of turn on itself and to break down muscle tissue um, to be able to survive. Um, where our bodies are highly adaptive and will do anything to keep you alive. So part of that's going to be using it, itself as fuel. Um, so any sorts of, um, of uh, biological um, 
functioning that isn't absolutely necessary for survival tends to start to shut down. So we see problems with higher order thinking that an individual's brain just really um, starts to shut down. We start to see um, multiple organ failures that can occur with that. The body may begin to to actually um, consume um, heart muscle so that the heart begins to shrink and not function as well. We see cardiac arrhythmias. We certainly see loss of body fluid and dehydration. Um, There can be problems with renal failure, kidney failure, intestinal problems, um, and eventually certainly can lead to death. Um, As a matter of fact, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any of the psychiatric illnesses. I didn't know that. Um, That's really troubling um, when you think about how in some instances, your mind can turn on you as well because, you know, what you see in the mirror, you're not able to process in a realistic way. Right, so right. Also a disease of the brain as well, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I, I think what you're saying is a really important point is that the when a person starves themselves, um, the brain begins to shut down and that actually fuels the restricting process because you're just not thinking as clearly. You become much more rigid. Um, you come, become much more preoccupied and, and focused on, on the uh, weight, weight loss uh, tactics, and, and that's due to the brain just not functioning well. Um, that treatment first has to involve feeding the brain because if you don't feed it, it, the person really has a hard time changing their behavior. So typically when someone comes into treatment for anorexia, um, are you able to give them IVs? Do they have a medical assessment? Do they do blood work? How do you begin to treat someone with anorexia? Well, the fact that anorexia um, very much affects a person medically, um, their physical condition as well as their psychiatric uh, condition and because they're so um, nutritionally malnourished, that you really have to focus um, in in several different ways um, with treatment. Um, that it can't just be talk therapy. So, um, yes, that there is a medical workup that needs to be done, really looking at kind of uh, physically what's going on with the individual. There needs to be a um, nutritional assessment, um, really looking at just uh, how limited um, an individual's uh, food intake is, uh, what their eating habits are. Oftentimes they tend to be very ritualized in what they will eat and won't eat. Um, there also needs to be a psychiatric assessment um, because severe eating disorders rarely um, occur alone, um, that there are other psychiatric problems that, that will go along with it, such as anxiety and depression, um, sometimes substance abuse, um, sometimes there, there's trauma response that has occurred. Um, so you really have to kind of assess all of that as well. Um, we also do a family assessment because... Um, you know, even though families don't cause an eating disorder, the the eating disorder has a significant impact on the family, and then the family can then have a significant impact on the eat, the person with the eating disorder. So you really have to address all of that as as well. You had mentioned a little bit about trauma. What is the role that trauma plays in anorexia? Well, trauma um, is what we call sort of a non-specific. Um, risk factor for um, anorexia, and actually for bulimia as well, and binge eating disorder. Um, And not everyone who has an eating disorder um, obviously has has had severe trauma in their lives. However, um, 
um, if you've had severe trauma, um, an eating disorder um, can be one of the, the ways that you cope with what we call trauma response, meaning the, the flooding of memories that can come back or the sensations that an individual experiences or the emotions that are tied to the trauma, um, either restricting food or, or uh, eating, um, binge eating can be a way to try to um, avoid experiencing those very negative internal um, events that uh, can occur after trauma. Um, so it really sort of keeps the trauma at bay. Um, we have a couple minutes before we go to commercial, but could you talk a little bit about the difference between bulimia and binge eating? Certainly, certainly. Binge eating, or let me start with bulimia. Bulimia, um, a component of bulimia is binge eating, which means really eating um, a lot of calories within a relatively short period of time, more than what we would consider normal. And typically that binging is feeling sort of out of control of one's eating and tends to be pretty rapid. With bulimia, an individual will then engage in what we call compensatory behaviors, meaning that they do things to get rid of the calories. So that would include purging, sometimes it's diuretic abuse, laxative abuse, sometimes it can be exercise. With somebody who binge eats and doesn't um, engage in compensatory behaviors, and that's considered binge eating disorder. And so um, for folks that have bulimia, um, how, how do they differentiate in terms of their clinical profile? What, what's different? Well, bulimia um, is, uh, well, binge eating disorder is, is, is more, um, uh, we see a higher incidence of that of bulim- than bulimia, but with bulimia, you oftentimes also see other sort of psychiatric issues going on, so that you'll see perhaps more impulsivity. Um, you may also see more substance abuse associated with um, bulimia. Um, We'll be right back after this commercial um, to learn more about complicated eating disorders with Dr. Brooke. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Make the most of your beautiful life. Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace, balance, and success in your life. Are you aware that every 3,500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body? And running one mile only burns 200 calories? So portion size does matter, and migraines do have a cure. What is it? You'll have to tune in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Today we're talking about treating complex eating disorders and co-occurring disorders with Dr. Gail Brooks, who is the uh, Chief Clinical Officer of the Renfrew Center in South Florida. Before we went to break, Dr. Brooks, we were talking a little bit about the connection between bulimia and substance abuse. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Okay. Um, We see a... um, um, a high incidence of substance abuse among um, the eating disorder population. And I think that there's some real sort of similarities between um, just the the vulnerability factors that can lead to a person developing both as well as um, the function of the eating disorder and the substance abuse substance use can be very similar as well. Um, You know, I think some of the research is showing that there's some real similarity in terms of the brain chemistry that what we see with eating disorders and substance use um, in terms of the reward centers and also, you know, sort of dopamine hypersensitivity and that sort of thing. We also see sort of similarly in both eating disorders and in substance abuse that there's family history, that there's a kind of genetic genetic component that seems to go through families. And if someone has a family history of substance abuse, that they're, you know, at more risk of developing an eating disorder. Um, Also, just psychologically, we see similarities that the low self-esteem, depression, incidence of depression, anxiety, impulsivity, that those are sort of shared among both um, types of of disorders, Um, oftentimes um, abuse. Um, you will see abuse in, in the history of, of substance users and, and eating disorder patients. Um, and also just in terms of the connection with um, the, the social connections that are made that support the illness. Um, you know, we see with eating disorders that oftentimes um, they may come, um, may be very associated with other individuals who are very deep in their eating disorder through social media and whatnot that they stay connected and that this sort of drives their eating disorder and sort of keeps it, uh, keeps it going. Um, in terms of the function of eating disorder and substance use, um, the similarity there is that I think they're both primary ways of trying to cope with um, emotions. Uh, it's a way to sort of avoid feeling, uh, whether you turn to substances or whether you turn to eating disorder, um, that they, they both sort of serve that purpose. Um, 
what we see oftentimes with, with women with eating disorders and substance use, that there can be some crossover in their substance use, that they use certain types of substances that will help curb their appetite, um, will, will result in them being able to lose weight, um, and um, also to deal with whatever sort of anxiety and, and guilt that they feel um, about their eating disorder. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things we find even with an, sometimes with anorexics that come in is that the only calories they're consuming are alcohol. You know, they won't consume food, but will um, sort of use their daily allotment of, of calories for alcohol. You know, it's been um, my experience in the past when I was coordinator of a woman's halfway house that um, some of the the women, of course, these are women who primarily had a substance use disorder, and we were finding out that they had also had some type of eating disorder. But, you know, typically um, it's been my experience that that um, these these women get in some very unhealthy relationships where mm-hmm. um, they, they actually don't have a, a very good sense of themselves and they're so um, interpsychically developed, um, attached to this partner who they see as their identity or who they see fulfills them in some way that it, it was a major obstacle in their recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, was that unique or have you know? I, I, I think that that's actually, you know, I think when you see someone who has um, bulimia in particular and is also um, abusing substances, that their relationships can be very unhealthy. Um, it's almost like they're, they're sort of addicted to the drama um, in their lives and um, really... They either have these unhealthy relationships or they just have this relationship with food um, that they really don't know how to um, have a satisfying, um, healthy adult relationship with with a partner. And the relationship with food is the primary relationship, isn't it? Yeah, the primary relationship, that's correct. You know, that um, a a lot of our treatment um, at the Renfrew Center is very relationally focused because what we really want to help women to be able to do is to, you know, if we're asking you to sort of let let go of the relationship with food being primary but to really turn to people, that you have to learn then how to be in relationship. Um, You have to learn the skills uh, to be able to uh, be in a healthy relationship with another human being. And so that's a lot of the focus um, of the work. So there's a lot of group work, a lot of family work, um, the intensity of the therapy relationship. There's a lot of focus on, you know, how do you get your needs met in a relationship with someone. Is the Renfrew Center co-ed or is it primarily women? It's our residential facilities are primarily women. Um, and the reason the, uh, is only, I'm sorry, is, is strictly women. Uh, the reason for that is that um, because so many of our our Women come in with with trauma histories and whatnot. That it it can be very complicated, complicating for them to be in treatment with with males as well. So we've found that we were able to really set up a, a very safe environment um, and structure um, with it being an, an all female environment. Um, before we started the show, I was asking you if morbid obesity is also an eating disorder, and mm-hmm. you were saying that that may be something different. Could you explain to our our audience, when is obesity an eating disorder? Okay. There certainly can be a lot of overlap between um, binge eating disorder and obesity, um, mainly because of the fact that when somebody is binge eating um, and they're not engaging in any uh, compensatory behaviors like purging or whatever, that it can lead to a very excessive weight gain. And um, so in those individuals, you, you can have somebody who's quite 
quite obese and, and struggling with binge eating. Um, the reason why I say this, there's some um, differences as well is because because somebody is obese does not automatically mean they have an eating disorder. Um, that an eating disorder is a psychiatric disorder and um, that if the, an individual has to also be uh, have some of the psychiatric components that we see with, with binge eating disorder, the very low self-esteem, the oftentimes we'll see depression, anxiety uh, being a part of that. And when we've looked at, stu- when we've looked at studies of individuals with, um, uh, with binge eating disorder, that that's just a subset of obese individuals. A person can be obese and not necessarily have other psychiatric conditions going on. So it's important that we sort of separate that out. And also the treatment is sort of slightly different. That somebody who has binge eating disorder um, is uh, using food to uh, really cope in a, in a very significant way with their feelings. And when you to put them on a diet and they start to feel sort of uh, deprived and whatnot, that that can actually result in more binge eating for them. Um, so typically with, with, when we're treating binge eating disorder, we're really not prescribing a diet for them. We're, we're trying to help normalize their eating, just as we would with somebody who's anorexic or bulimic, but we're not specifically looking to, um, the main goal isn't dieting and weight loss um, with these individuals. Um, I was wondering what role sugar, I mean, sometimes, you know, like you hear about sugar being addictive, what is mm-hmm. the role that sugar plays in all of these eating disorders? Well, there are certainly um, treatment programs that come from a more addiction model that view um, an actual addiction to sugar being the sort of root at the root of the um, eating disorder or or the binge eating. Um, You know, there's there's a lot of controversy around that. It it certainly isn't a a clear-cut thing like you may see with alcohol or drugs. that um, there's probably some interaction effect. There's some studies that are showing that when you binge eat, that it does begin to affect the brain and that that can lead to perhaps more binge eating. Um, However, um, I I think because a person has to eat and to get them to avoid whole groups of foods and things like that, I think can very much sometimes contribute to the... um, uh, the ambivalence and, and conflict that they have with food and um, lead to a lot of black and white sort of thinking about food that we, in the work that we do with patients, that we really try to legalize all foods and, um, you know, educate, provide you know, education on how to best, you know, uh, feed oneself in a healthy manner. But we're really trying to help them to normalize their eating pattern versus engage in a, a diet or engage in, you know, avoidance of certain whole um, uh, groupings of foods and that sort of thing. You know, uh, the weight loss industry is billions and billions of dollars a year, but it seems like as a society we're fatter than ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Why is that? Do you have any idea? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that diets don't work particularly well. Um, you know, you're really going against um, some pretty strong biology when you try to really limit, severely limit dieting. So probably for, for most individuals it's it's not a you know, oftentimes a successful practice, but I think for somebody in, that has binge eating disorder in particular, they're more likely to really struggle with this because they have such strong desires to, such strong urges to uh, binge eat and that there's such a psychological basis to it. And if you're not dealing with 
the psychological problems underneath the needs that this is trying to fill for them, how they're using it as a coping mechanism and that sort of thing, then you end up, you know, just, I think, um, uh, being un- in, unsuccessful in, in your attempts. You know, we all have comfort foods that, I mean, for me, it's like pizza and ice cream. Mm-hmm. If I'm having a really bad day or a bad week, it's like, well, let's go out for pizza mm-hmm. or let's go for ice cream. And there is a comforting um, component to food for all of us. So mm-hmm. this is, I would think, especially challenging in treatment. Right, exactly. Well, it is true. I mean, I think what we all use um, probably food as a coping strategy at, at at various times uh, in our lives, I think the problem becomes when it's the only way you know how to cope, then it becomes, you know, it begins to then control you and control your life. Um, and so it's, it's very, very important that, um, you know, that when a person gets treatment that they're really learning how to experience emotions, being able to not be, be avoiding of, of emotions, but to um, learn how to, to function more effectively in the face of their emotions. But that's a really important oh. part of the treatment. Yeah, yeah. I guess, um, how do we teach people to be comfortable with their emotions? How do you well, do it at Run Yeah. You know, I think that's at the heart of perhaps a lot of the uh, treatment for psychiatric disorders in general is that a lot of the problems that we see are, are that an individual is struggling with being able to... Um, manage their own feeling states and that what happens is that that leads to a lot of avoidant behavior where we engage in behaviors to not feel what we're feeling or to not experience internally what we're experiencing and that um, what's important in treatment is that we have to get people very present in the moment, being able to be in the moment with feelings and with other internal events that are going on um, so that you feel it, but you don't run into the kitchen and eat six donuts or you don't not eat lunch or whatever, that you can be with the feelings, experience them, and understand that feelings actually have a life where they peak and then they subside and that once you kind of work your way through it, that the feelings themselves become much more manageable in the long run and you're not having to engage in avoidant behavior. And we'll be right back after commercial with more on treating complex eating disorders with Dr. Brooke. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. There are many who have faced life-changing adversity and have demonstrated the resiliency of the human spirit in spite of that. You'll hear these moving stories and learn about the impact of life's challenges when you tune into Inspire Journeys, Overcoming Adversity and Thriving with your host, Lisa Ferentz. 
you'll find meaning in some of the most difficult traumatic experiences. And by doing so, you can pay it forward and help others through their healing processes. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Dr. Gail Brooks, who is the Chief Clinical Officer of the Renfrew Center in South Florida about treating complex eating disorders and other co-occurring disorders. Um, before we went to break, Dr. Brooks, you began to talk about the importance of dealing with folks' emotions and for them to get to sit with their emotions. Could you um, explain to our listeners a little bit more about what, what is effective treatment for these complicated um, co-occurring disorders? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I think one of the key maintaining factors that we see in a lot of psychiatric illnesses, you know, across the board is that there's a strong drive to avoid negative emotional experiences. And we see that with eating disorders. We see it in substance abuse. We see it in anxiety and depression. And so a big uh, piece, uh, an important component in treatment is really helping an individual to be able to um, be very present-focused with emotion. So a lot of that might involve mindfulness interventions, being, um, being in the now with feelings, and allowing themselves to experience it rather than to avoid it. What we try to help them to see is that the short-term avoidant behavior that they're doing gives them relief in the moment, but really does create much long-term um, emotional distress for them through whether it's the use of substances or their eating disorder symptoms or, or whatever. So we do um, exposure um, types of, of therapies, meaning that um, if you're avoiding um, certain types of foods because of the fear that you're this intense fear that you have of the food, it's important that you be able to experience um, approaching that food, being able to um, tolerate the emotions that come up with that and um, be able to allow that emotion to subside. So we will do exposure types of therapies um, around food in particular. We will also do exposure techniques in terms of different um, situations, environmental situations that a person may be avoiding. It may be a relational exposure that needs to happen if a person is is avoiding certain types of relational interactions and that sort of thing. So really you know, sort of getting the person um, actually exposed to those kinds of situations. Um, we also, um, 
find that it's very, very important that we look at a person's cognitions, all of the thoughts that come up. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is sort of the gold standard in the treatment of bulimia in particular and also binge eating. Um, so it's very important to look at a lot of the distorted um, thoughts and um, um, belief systems that a person has that um, are really sort of fueling their eating, both their eating disorder and also fueling a lot of the emotional distress that they, they have. Um, also, there's a lot of focus on um, motivation, motivation enhancement. Um, some of the similarities that you see with eating disorders and substance abuse is that in both situations, there can be a lot of ambivalence about change. Um, so that really helping an individual to look at the benefits and, and why that is important to them to make change and to look at sort of the pros and cons of that to move their readiness um, to begin to change is, is also a big component um, uh, of treatment uh, as well. And, and overall, just sort of helping them to improve the quality of their life experience. Um, when so much of your life is spent just coping in unhealthy ways, you're really not living your life. And so um, a lot of what is focused on in treatment is helping a person to look at what it is that they value, um, what's important to them, and what's, how the eating disorder and the other disorders that may go along with it are interfering with them getting on with their life. Are you using contingency management at all? Um, some of that is used um, as well. I mean, certainly looking at re, um, positive reinforcement um, for... Um, engaging in um, uh, alter- uh, healthy behavior. So patients who, let's say, if somebody is very fearful of eating um, all of their meal, um, there will be uh, a contingency plan that if you eat 100%, that that's a part of what sort of helps you to move towards through the level system to be able to achieve the things that are important to you. Um, so, yes, we do use that um, as, as part of the treatment. Um, I was wondering, you had mentioned that a lot of the, the folks that you see have a co-occurring substance use disorder, mm-hmm. and what role does self-help play in aftercare or in treatment? Self-help is, is I think, critical, um, particularly in, in dealing with the uh, substance abuse. Um, as part of, we have a dual track here in our center because, as I mentioned, so many women come in with both eating disorder and substance abuse, and it's really important that you treat both together. Um, I think sometimes what, what happens, what we see sometimes is that we will get referrals of, of individuals who've been to substance abuse treatment and then go into halfway houses and their eating disorder is out of control. And it's so out of control that they really can't live with others uh, at the house who are not eating disorder that they really need to be in a different environment that's helping to support their recovery with their eating disorder. So when they come to us, we know that we can't just treat the eating disorder, that we also have to be treating the substance use. So with that, they would be um, very much um, involved in AA, both at the center where we have AA, in-house AA meetings or going out into the community, we really see this as a lifelong support system that will help them to be able to, um, you know, continue to develop the, the pro-social skills that they need um, for a successful recovery. What is the um, recovery rate for folks that have co-occurring eating disorders and substance use disorders? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it, it's sort of hard to necessarily um, put our hands around that. Um, we 
do a follow-up, um, well, we do assessments pre and post when a person comes into treatment, and then we do six-month and, and um, 12-month follow-up. And, you know, we, we certainly see that from admission to discharge that there's significant um, improvement in eating disorder thoughts and, and behaviors. Um, after six months, we, we certainly see that there's some retrenchment that a person can go back to struggling with some of those issues as they are about out in the community and, and, and um, you know, back in dealing in situations that um, may have caused them problems before. But um, we're probably seeing right now about a 30% readmission rate with patients who've gone out and, and really struggled to the point that they've had to come back uh, into treatment. Um, but the more complex the eating disorder is, if somebody has both eating disorder and substance abuse and depression, anxiety, whatever, um, these are going to be individuals that are, will be, um, are going to be much more at risk of relapse. Well, and I think as with other chronic illnesses is that um, symptoms... People will have symptoms and um, they they need to be treated just like when somebody has diabetes and they need to get their insulin adjusted or they have they go into insulin shock or somebody with uh, coronary artery disease, you know, gets another blockage. I think that um, there's no real magic cure for any of these um, illnesses. Right, right. You're, you're so right. You know, I believe with eating disorders that a person can fully recover to the point that they, you know, don't struggle with it later in life. But I think there are going to be a group of, you know, those individuals who go through, you know, uh, times of, of improvement where their symptoms are under control and they're really, you know, in, in good recovery and, they're, and then they can go through a transition or some stressful phase of, of life that, you know, causes them to go back into really struggling with symptoms again. I think oftentimes we think about um, eating disorders as a young person's illness, but um, people can develop eating disorders in midlife as well, can't they? They certainly can. Um, you know, I think one of the, the ways that our field of eating disorders has evolved over the years is that we've recognized now that eating disorders are not a, just a young girl's, uh, young white girl's disease, that, it, that it's really, we see it in all ethnic groups, that we can see it in all age groups. And an eating disorder in somebody in their 40s and 50s looks somewhat different than an eating disorder in a teenager. And the issues that they're dealing with can be very different, um, the sort of life stage issues that they're dealing with. Um, so it's important that if someone is older with an eating disorder, that they be able to either connect with a practitioner or a treatment facility that um, maybe has, has experience in dealing with older people with eating disorders and also hopefully will have others of that age group there so that they can, you know, feel some connection with others who are, you know, dealing with that problem. How are they clinically different and when they become having eating disorder at middle age? What looks well, different? I, I think what, what we can see is, for one thing, um, if you have your eating disorder, let's say, in your 50s, oftentimes you've had that throughout the course of your life. And so um, there may be more medical um, uh, issues that are going on, the body has been, you know, malnourished for a longer period of time. Um, food issues can be slightly different because not only are you struggling to feed yourself, but you're also having to oftentimes feed family members, children, that sort of thing. So that can bring up other kind of conflicts um, for the individual. Um, we're oftentimes dealing with um, later stage life um, concerns such as menopause, the body's changing in a different way, whereas 
when an adolescent, um, oftentimes the stressor might be puberty that's bringing about some of the intensity of, of symptoms. With an older person or with an older woman, it can be the onset of menopause and the changing body that's going along with that can bring about a lot of um, distress for them. So you need to really be able to deal with their particular life stage issues um, to, I think, effectively treat their eating disorder. Um, so are, are they more difficult to treat at an older age? Um, is, there, is, is it harder for somebody to come to terms with an eating disorder at an older age? I would say yes and no. I mean, I, I think it, um, on the one hand, you, it can be a little bit easier dealing with them. When I say easier, meaning that um, because you're dealing with somebody who's a bit more mature, um, is able to, um, you know, has a more mature brain, is, is just able to sort of view things in a little, with a, lot, a little larger perspective. Um, I, I think that treating an older uh, someone who's older with their eating disorder, you may be able to get to more of the sort of um, the heart of the issues and the intensity of, of what's going on for them, um, more so than a teenager. The, where it's more difficult is also because they're older and they've had oftentimes have had the disorder for so long that it's so chronic and so in, uh, entrenched that it can be more challenging. Um, their identity is really wrapped up in their eating disorder, so the thought of of letting go of their eating disorder means a, a loss of identity that can be very frightening and, and unsettling. Um, we'll be right back after this commercial break with more on complicated eating disorders with Dr. Gail Brooks. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. 
Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Um, Dr. Brooks, could you explain to our listeners a little bit about the services that are provided at the Renfrew Center? At the, uh, at the Renfrew Center, we, we offer a continuum of care, um, which we feel is really important because, um, you know, depending on how severe an eating disorder is and whether a person has other sort of comorbid um, psychiatric conditions, they may need different varying levels of, of structure. So at our highest level, we have our acute care residential facilities. We have two of them, one in Philadelphia and then uh, the site where I am here in Coconut Creek, Florida, where we um, you know, provide 24-hour um, structure and very intensive treatment. And this is for individuals who are most severely um, affected by their eating disorder. Um, we also uh, offer a day program or, um, or partial hospitalization and um, intensive outpatient, which is a uh, three-evening-a-week program. And those um, services are offered not only at um, our Coconut Creek site, but at 11, 11 other um, sites across the uh, eastern seaboard um, in various uh, cities. Um, and then uh, we also offer uh, straight outpatient, which is individual therapy or family therapy or group work on an outpatient basis. Um, when somebody is discharged, um, they leave with a meal plan. Can you explain a little bit? To, is it a three meals a day or three meals and three snacks? What does the meal plan consist of? Okay. Our, our, every uh, patient, in, in no matter what level of care they're in, um, they meet with a dietitian who, um, it, and these are dietitians that are really skilled in treating eating disorders. Um, and so their, their focus is sort of on helping them to uh, really change their relationship with food. Um, so it's not just about, you know, eat this amount of protein and eat that amount of carbohydrate, that kind of thing, that it's really more about learning how to um, sort of honor your body, uh, know, know when you're feeling um, hungry, honor fullness, and, and know when you're full. Um, they give them an eating plan, which is sort of a structure, which is really very much based on the, the um, you know, dietetic um, food pyramid um, in terms of exchanges. And, and just being well-balanced is, is really the key and really teaching um, the individual about how to eat in moderation and to, you know, make all foods kind of legal, that kind of thing. Um, so everyone leaves with that um, plan um, as part of their recovery. Um, just, I want to make sure we get this in. How can people contact you or the Renfrew Center um, if they want more information? 
they can call 1-800-RENFREW, and that's R-E-N-F-R-E-W. They also can go on our website, um, renfrewcenter.com, and um, that will bring up, you know, not only information about Renfrew, but also we'll give a listing of all the various sites that we have, um, um, our day day program and, and IOP programs as well. Historically, we, we think of um, especially anorexia and bulimia as being young white women's disease. Um, do you see this across other cultures and genders as well? We certainly do. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this is, uh, this is I think, an area where our, our field has really grown, the field of eating disorders, is that we understand now that, you know, no culture is immune to the development of eating disorders, and um, we see, um, you know, women of color, African-American women, um, Asian women, Hispanic women, Native American women uh, struggling with eating disorders uh, as well. Um, With African-American women, we see incidences of bulimia um, at about the same rates as we do with with Caucasian women. Um, We see higher incidences of of binge eating disorder in the African-American community. Um, and we also see eating disorders in men, um, even though it isn't as prevalent, it, it certainly exists, and um, that uh, the presentation of an eating disorder in a man can be, can be different than what we see in women. Um, typically with, with men, oftentimes um, the focus is the body image conflicts really have to do more with, you know, feelings that they are too lean, that they need to really bulk up more. We see it uh, associated with um, um, sometimes with sports, uh, with wrestling and, and jockeys and, you know, where, where you're in any sort of sport that has weight requirements, that that can um, sort of contribute to an eating disorder in a male. Um, and also we see um, g- gay men, that there's a sort of higher risk of eating disorders among gay men. Um, and uh, we also see, we can see the signs of eating disorders in young boys as well. So there's really um, no, there's no uh, vaccine, if you will. Anybody it can be- become affected by an eating disorder. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no, you know, when you think about it in our culture, our weight-focused culture, uh, um, really nobody escapes that. doesn't matter sort of what, um, you know, what, what demographic group you're in, um, there's a lot of pressure to look a certain way. There is. There certainly is. And it seems like it gets more. Um, now we have more social media outlets. We have more um, information coming at us in all different ways. And mm-hmm. um, it's, I, I wouldn't want to be a really young person right now. There's just too much information getting bombarded at them. Right, right. It's very difficult. You know, some studies are even looking at the relationship between eating disorders and bullying, you know, and we're finding that, that um, you know, kids who've been bullied in school are much more at risk of developing uh, eating disorders. Um, so that, you know, we understand, we can understand bullying as just another form of trauma that can um, yes. make a person vulnerable to, to an eating disorder. You had mentioned that anorexia is, has the highest rate of um, mortality among psychiatric illnesses. What is the suicide rate amongst people with eating disorders? You know, actually, it's pretty high. As a matter of fact, the um, the leading cause of death in anorexia is suicide. 
Okay. Uh, so that that's the you know pretty sobering when you think about it. Um, but I, I think that when an eating disorder takes over, I, I think it the your whole life shuts down. And um, many times these young women come in and and are in such a grip of the eating disorder, and their lives have gotten um, so stalled that um, you know death seems to be the only option for them. Um, so it it it's you know. And, and even with bulimia, particularly with bulimia and substance use, there's a much higher incidence of suicide with them as well. So um, if you have one take-home message for our audience, what would it be? You know, I think it would be that, that um, probably everyone knows someone with an eating disorder. I think it's so widespread. Um, and so to be aware of it, I, I think sometimes parents can miss it. Sometimes spouses can miss it, um, but to, you know, just to keep in mind that, um, you know, anyone you know could have one, and instead if you start to see signs of someone either losing a lot of weight, being very preoccupied with food, um, you know, engaging in, you know, unhealthy practices or of whether it's vomiting or laxative abuse or whatever, and to, you know, really encourage them to, to get help, um, that it's important that we all be aware. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us, Dr. Brooks. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Have a great week, everybody, and um, I hope you enjoy this wonderful summer weather we're going to have over the next week. Um, We'll be talking to you soon. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.